0: Well, we're in a series in the book of Exodus called The Journey, and uh, we've been following the people of Israel from the Red Sea into the Promised Land, and God didn't directly take them from the Red Sea into the Promised Land. He led them in the wilderness for 40 years on a journey, and what we've been saying is that this is a metaphor of the Christian life. The Christian life is a journey. Um, All of us are wandering, in a sense. We are in process, and we are transformed just like the people of Israel, Israel were on the journey. And so uh, we've been going with them, and we've been seeing that the people of Israel have issues. <laughs> they have issues, and we've seen that so many of their issues are our issues. And so uh, we've seen that they, they are complaining all the time. They, and if, Every time a new crisis arises, their go-to response is complaining, and so often that's our issue as well. We've seen that they uh, have issues, issues with overwork, right? So he gave them the Sabbath, and he says, I want you to understand rest, but they're overworking. And so often, this is our issue as well. We overwork just like they do. Um, the people of Israel, we saw that they were, uh, they had trouble trusting God for his provision. And so they're stressed out about, finances and money and material things, and so often we do that as well. And so their issues are our issues as we follow them uh, through the journey on the desert. But this morning we come to um, one of their issues that I think many of us probably don't identify with. <clears throat> you know, probably many of us were saying, you know, gosh, we're, we're, um, we're seeing ourselves in the people of Israel, but today we're like, nope, <laughs> at least I don't struggle with this. At least this thing that they do, we don't do. Uh, and I think probably many of us have a trouble, have, are going to have trouble identifying with it because today, what do they do? The people of Israel commit idolatry. So Moses is on the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And meanwhile, the people of Israel are on the bottom of the mountain. What are they doing? They're fashioning a golden calf. They're bowing down to the calf and they're worshiping it. And you're like, you know what? Uh, at least I don't do that. You know, at least I don't struggle with idolatry the way they did. Um, This is one thing that maybe uh, we get a pass on. And it's because I think when we think about idolatry, we think of primitive people, uh, you know, distant, a long time ago, bowing down to physical graven images. And last I checked, there were no idol factories in Batesville. (laughs) You know, I, I bet if I went to probably any one of your homes today, I wouldn't see a golden god on your mantle above the fireplace. You know, probably many of us are, probably don't think that we struggle with worshiping idols. But here's what I want you to see today is that idolatry is still very much alive and well in the modern world. I want you to see that, in fact, their problem is our problem. And that's what the Bible says all the way through. That idolatry is something that the Bible from first to last is talking about. In fact, in Romans one, the Bible says that our deepest problem, when the Bible comes to diagnose um, our deepest issues, it says when it really comes down to it, your deepest issue is not lust, basically, it's not greed, it's not anger, fundamentally. Your basic problem as you sit in the seat this morning, according to the Bible, is idolatry. You've got a worship problem. This is what's at the root of all of your issues. And really, it's not that the Bible, it's not only the Bible that says, says this. Uh, there's a famous atheist, his name is uh, Frederick Nietzsche. And uh, Frederick Nietzsche uh, understood the basic grip that is, idols have on our lives. In his book, The Twilight of Idols, he talks about idolatry, and this is what he says. He says, the modern world is filled with gods. He says, there are more gods in this world than there are realities. Right, and so if this is, if this is our issue, Right, if, if this is if this is at the root of all of our problems, we need to learn how to discern our idols because we don't. It's not that we make gods anymore. It's not like there are factories where we're bowing down, you know, making these images and bowing down to them. The, they, they're still around, but they've gone underneath. And so we need to learn how to discern our idols. You know, what are the things that we are really worshiping? And that's what I want to do this morning. <clears throat> As we look at the story of the golden calf, because the story of the golden calf, this is really. Um, This is a basic kind of fundamental uh, root story when it comes to idolatry. This is the first time that the people of Israel collectively decided to worship another god. And therefore, what it is is it becomes a really good case study for idolatry. Uh, Looking at this story, we we get a really good picture of what an idol is, what an idol looks like in our lives. And yes, they're worshiping a golden calf, and maybe, yes, maybe we're not doing that anymore, but there are principles here. There are, there are things about idolatry that we learn about, this pa- about in this passage that will help us uncover our idols, and so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at the passage. I think the story tells us three things about the nature of idolatry. Three things about the nature of idolatry that help us discern uh, maybe what, what are the rival gods in our lives? What are the idols in our lives? I want to go through them one by one as we go through the story. And so the first thing that the story tells us about idolatry is that an idol is your ultimate object of affection. What is an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that has become your ultimate object of affection. It is the thing that that you're fixated on. An idol is anything or anyone that's become Your ultimate love. Now, when you look at the story here, um, like I said, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He's gone. And the people are frustrated. They're frustrated with Moses. They're frustrated with the Lord. And frankly, they're done. They say, God, you know, we're, we're, we're done with this. We're done with this waiting. We don't want to worship this God anymore. And so they detach their loyalty from the true God. They say, we're leaving, that's it. No, here's what I want you to see, though. They don't detach their loyalty and go worship nothing. What they're going to do is they're going to exchange their loyalty for something else. Right? There's no vacuum vacuum that's left there. There's no worship vacuum. If they're going to stop worshiping the true God, they don't go and worship nothing. They're going to worship something else in his place. And that something else is the golden calf. They, they, they fashion this golden image, and it becomes their ultimate object of affection. And it tells us something about the human heart. The human heart is built for worship. The, the human soul must have an ultimate object of affection. All of us worship. And if you're not worshiping the true gods, you will worship something else. David Foster Wallace, who's another atheist author, who talks about idolatry. And he's this postmodern writer, and he's, he's written novels and things like that. He gave an address at Kenyon College, which is a small liberal arts college. And the, 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 the address ultimately was about idolatry in the modern world. And here's what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So, so they stop worshiping the true God, but they don't go and do wor- not worship anything. They're gonna exchange the true God for something else because all of us are built for worship. All of us must have an ultimate object of affection. All of us, all of us have an ultimate love that we're fixated on, that we're chasing after. And this so often becomes the rival God to the throne of our hearts. A, an idol is anything or anyone that has captured your ultimate object of affection, your gaze. Third century writer Origen put it this way. He said, what each one honors above all else, what before all things he admires and loves, for, loves this for him is God. So it's anything that, that you honor above all else what you love and admire before anything else. Tim Keller puts it this way. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It is anything so desired that your life hardly seems worth living without it. It is where your energy, passion, and emotional resources flow to effortlessly. So here's your rival God. It's, It's that thing in your life that you say, if I only had that, then I'd be happy. If I could only get that, then I'd be happy. It's that thing you're chasing over, the, and you think, if I could only get that, then my life would have meaning, then I'd be worth it, then everything would be worth it. That is your rival Lord. Best example of this is the golem. In uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien's golem. And uh, Tolkien's golem, you know that he, he always talks to himself in the third person, Right, he always, and, he, and third person plural, so he's, he's talking uh, uh, to himself, saying us, and I think Tolkien's doing that to show kind of the divided loyalties in every human heart. All of us are like the golem. And here's what the golem, of course, has the ring of power. That's his ultimate object of affection. And this is what the golem is always saying to the ring of power. He's saying, we wants it, we needs it, we must have the precious, so bright, so beautiful, ah, the precious. That's my best golem example uh, voice there. I can do better than that, yeah. What is it that you must have, that you think you must have in order to be happy? This to you is your God. An idol is any good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. And an idol is always a good thing. Idols are always the best things in life. And when you look at the golden calf, the golden calf is a good thing. At least it symbolizes a good thing. And so in the ancient world, uh, you know, almost every ancient culture worshipped calves. Uh, You know, the ancient Egyptians had calves that they worshipped. Almost ancient Athens. Ancient cultures always worshipped a calf. And for these cultures, the calf was a symbol of strength and fertility. And strength and fertility, these are both very good things. Your rival God is always a good thing. These rival gods are the best things in life. So think about it. Your rival God could be a career, family, children, a spouse, achievement, some political cause, your own physical attractiveness or being viewed as physically attractive, romance, power, Comfort, financial security. You see, th- these are the best things in life. And the human heart is always taking good things and elevating them to godlike status and making them our ultimate objects of affection. If I only had that, then I'd be happy. If I only had a child, I'd be happy. If I only had a different child, then I'd be happy. <laughs> if I could only have a spouse, then I'd be happy. If if I could only reach that level of career success, then then I'd finally be happy. What is your rival, God? For me, uh, there there are two that I always keep on going back to. One one is romance, romantic love, and in my twenties, I I'm, that was my my mindset. I was a Christian in my twenties, and yet if at the at the thing that, that the way my heart really operated was that I wanted to find. Romance, I wanted to find a woman that I could marry that would, that would fill my life with meaning. That's what I was chasing after. If I could only have that, then my life would have meaning. And this probably is why it took me so long to get married. You know, because when, when, when that's your God, it's hard to find somebody who meets those expectations. I got married, and Anita is a beautiful gift, but she's a bad God. And then, then I moved on to career, career success, achievement. And I thought, if only I could reach that level of career success. If I could only have a, be a pastor, a pastor of an amazing church. You know, if I could, you know, I would live and buy by the quality of my sermon. I would live and die by the amount I could get done in a week. I would live and die by how well, you know, the attendance records were. And this, to me, was the thing I really was chasing after. Oh, I'd say it was God, but at the end of the day, my ultimate love was achievement. So what is it for you? What is it that if you got, your life would you feel like your life would be full of meaning? And what is it that if you didn't get, you'd be filled with despair? That to you is your rival God. So that's the first thing. Idols are our ultimate objects of affection. Well secondly, what else is the, what does the golden calf tell us about the nature of, of idolatry? Uh, another thing that an idol is, is an idol is your functional savior. Your idol is your functional savior. It's the thing that you're really looking to for redemption. It's the thing that you're really looking to for salvation. Now, if you look at this story, uh, what what do these people do with the golden calf? Well, they ask Aaron to fashion this God and then they attribute to the calf a saving function. In verse four, they say, um, they look at the God and they say, these are the gods that led us out of the land of Egypt. The calf is the one who saved us out of the land of Egypt. They attribute to the calf a saving function. Now, if you're God, this is incredibly offensive, isn't it? Because who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? It was the true God. It was the Lord. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who brought on the plagues. He is the one who delivered them and rescued them. But they look at the golden calf and they say, oh, here's the God who saves us. Here's the God who rescued us. Here's the God who delivers us. And a God is anything that you're looking to to save you. Your God is anything that you look to as your functional Savior. Now you may have an orthodox profession. You may say that you're a Christian. You may even say that Jesus is your Savior. But I'm asking, what, who or what is your functional Savior? In the story, Moses is gone. God is absent. They're in a crisis. They're terrified. They're scared. They're in the desert. And in that crisis, they, they reach out to the golden calf for salvation. And so here's here's the here's the operative question. When you're in a crisis, who or what do you reach out for to save you? You know, when when you when things are going terribly for you and you're and you're terrified, who do you look to to really save you, to give you comfort, to give you meaning? For many of us it's drugs or alcohol. Hopefully not for many of us, but for some of us, it's drugs or alcohol. Uh, For some of us, maybe it's pornography. You know that it's 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 sexuality, and 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 that is what you feel like is going to save you from the crisis. What is it that you reach out to when your life falls apart? That for you is your functional savior. That's your God. When I was younger, um, this uh, I had this mentor that I looked up to. His name was Skip Ryan. Um, a couple of you know Skip Ryan, and uh, Skip Ryan, he, uh, he was a pastor of a very large church, and he ended up being addicted to prescription drugs, and he was one of those guys that got a prescription from one doctor, and then he would go to another doctor and get a prescription from that doctor, and, and soon this pastor was completely addicted to these, m- this medication. And of course, he, he, somebody found it out, and so he was fied, fired, he stepped down for his pos- from his position, But then afterwards, he made a video that I watched it, and and he he says, listen. He said, I used to tell everybody that Jesus was my Savior. But he says, that's not the way my heart operated. He said, my heart operated on two different premises. Number one, I could control the way you thought about me by my incredible performance. Second premises was that that was the only thing that mattered in life. And so he says, this drove me. This drove me to the ground and I needed the drugs to rescue me from my greatest fear. He said, one time I walked into a drug rehabilitation center and he said, I was there as a pastor. I was there to visit somebody there in this this hospital. And he said, a nurse came up to me and and the nurse asked me, who is your God? And he said, I looked at the nurse and he said, I said, you have me mistaken, I'm I'm a visitor here. And the nurse said, undeterred, he looked at him and he said, no, who is your God? And he said, no, I'm a minister. Jesus is my God. And the nurse said, no, drugs are your God. And Skip Ryan said, of course, he was right. It's because the drugs were the things that were were rescuing me. They were my functional savior. Who or what is your functional savior? Who do you turn to when your life falls apart? That for you is your rival God. Martin Luther put it this way, whatever your heart clings to, whatever your heart relies upon, whatever your heart rests in, that properly is your God. Right, there are old idolatries that are underneath the surface of your life. You've hidden them underneath your religion. And when a crisis comes, then you, you you turn back to them again. This is exactly what they were doing. Who or what is your functional savior? This is the second thing the story tells us about idolatry. And so we're discerning our idols here, right? We don't bow down to statues, most of us anymore. And so what, how do we find the idols in our lives? Well, number one, they are our ultimate objects of affection. They are good things that we've made ultimate. They're the things that we're chasing after. Second of all, a guide, a God, a God, a God. It's your functional savior. It's the thing you're looking to in a crisis. This, who, who or what is the, is, the, is the thing that you look to for salvation? Thirdly, an idol is that which controls your life. An idol is that which controls your life. Now, notice what they do to the golden calf. They, they, they have Aaron make this calf. And then he, notice the way they ask him to do it. They go to Aaron and then they say up. Make us gods who shall go before us, it says in verse 4. So what do they want the calf to do? They want the calf to go before them. And what they mean by that is they want this calf to guide them. They want the calf to direct them. They want the calf to drive them forward. And who is the one who was doing this before? God was doing it before. He did it by the pill, pillar of fire by day and day or the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, that was the, the, that was the thing that was leading them forward and driving them towards the promised land. But now they say, out with God, we don't want him anymore. Now we want this golden calf to drive us. We want the golden calf to control us and guide us into the future. And here's, here, this tells us something about our idols. Our idols are those things that guide us forward. They're the things that drive our lives. They're the things that are really controlling us. Who or what is driving your life? Who or what is controlling you? And here's the thing. I mean, idols really don't have power to control you. I mean, they don't have real power. If you think about it, the Bible says, have no other gods before me. Um, but the question is, Are there other? are there really any other gods besides the true God? No, there's only one God. I mean, sex is not a god. Money is not a god. Power is not a real god. They don't have, you know, uh, they're not truly gods in the world. There's only one true God. They're imagined gods. And what's so funny about the story is they, they're giving this god so much power. Oh, golden calf! You know <laughs> they're saying, uh, "Lead us forward." Oh, you are the great calf. You are the great cow who's who's done so much for us. They're attributing to it so much power, but it's not. It's just a piece of metal. It's an imagined god. And in the Bible, whenever the Bible talks about idolatry, it always makes fun of the fact that they are not real gods. And so uh, Psalm 135 says this, the idols have, of the nations are silver and gold, they were, they are the work of, but they are the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. What's the psalmist saying? These are imagined gods, they're not real. There's only one God. But even though these things are imagined gods, they exercise very real, tangible power in our lives. Right? Money is not a god, and yet money exercises or it can exercise incredible control over a person's life. A god is that which is really controlling you. Becky Pippert in her book, Hope Has Its Reason, says this, "'Whatever controls us is our lord.'" The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Whether it's sex or money or romance or power, whatever you put in the center of your life, whatever becomes your functional savior, that thing begins to control you. And you might say, oh, God is the one who controls me. God is the one who's leading me. No, the thing that's really leading you is your rival God. Our rival gods control our emotions. You know, next time you have a very strong emotion like anxiety, follow that anxiety all the way down, follow the smoke of anxiety all the way down to the fire of idolatry because your anxiety will tell you what your God is about, where your God is. Because you're always anxious and terrified when your real God is threatened, right? And so, if your real God is beauty, and this is what you know, you need to be admired and desired. And you wake up in the morning and you see a, a blemish on your face. Suddenly, you're terrified. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You're filled with guilt and anxiety, because your that emotion is telling you what's at the center of your life. Or you're angry. You know, you get this inordinate outburst of anger. Where did that come from? What is that all about? Well, you follow that anger down to your idol because it's gonna tell you what your because whenever an idol is threatened, then you get angry. Then the emotions come out. <clears throat> Last night I was putting my kids down and I was so, I, I got so angry with them because they wouldn't go to bed. They'd had too much sugar and weed or something and so they wouldn't go to bed and 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 at one point, I just got so mad. It was livid, and it scared me. And I started asking myself the question, where in the world did that come from? Here's where it came from. My idol is comfort, and those kids were disturbing my comfort. And I wanted to put them down so that I could go do something else. Right? Follow your, your anger to your idolatry because your idols control your emotions. Your idols so often control your money and your wealth. If you want to know what your idol is, uh, look at your pocketbook, look at your wallet. Because our money flows effortlessly to the things at the center of our lives. When they made the golden calf, Aaron said, hey, give me your money. And they said, oh, take it, take it. Right, you spend your money on your gods. Your gods control your sins. Gosh, this is so good because the, the, Bible, whenever, the Bible, whenever it talks about sin, it doesn't just say, hey, look at your sins and stop sinning, and if you're angry, stop that. If you're lustful, stop that. It always says, look underneath your sins because underneath every sin is, is an idol that's fueling it. And so if you lie, if you're somebody who struggles with lying, don't just say, oh, I, I, st- I need to stop lying. Ask yourself the question, why am I lying? What's at the root of my lying? So often you need approval. In order to get approval, you'll lie. Or you're someone who's, you look at pornography and you just can't stop. You need to, st- don't just say, you know, I look at pornography, I need to stop. Ask yourself the question, why do I look at porn? What's underneath that? Do I need, sex? Do, I, do I desire sex a little bit too much? Is that the thing that's at the center of my life? You see, you need to look underneath your sins. Because so often your, your idols are what are fueling your destructive behavior. Martin Luther said that you never break any of the 10 commandments without breaking the first one. In other words, an idol is always the reason why you ever do anything wrong. And it's why you can't stop. Because idols give sin its power. And when the Bible always, when it talks about your sin, it talks about it like a root canal. You need to pull that thing up by the roots and see what's underneath. You know, to, to stop sinning, it's like, it's like doing open heart surgery and finding out what the root cause is. Because our idols drive us, our idols control us. And so these are the three things the story tells us about idolatry. Are you discerning your idol? Are you certain? You know we're not all worshiping golden calves. I know that we're not doing that. But but what is your ultimate object of affection? What good thing have you made into an ultimate thing? What thing do you tell yourself if I don't have that, my life's not worth living? What is your functional savior? What do you turn to when your life falls apart? What's driving you? Where's your money going to? Look at your sin patterns. What, what are the sins that you commit most, most repeatedly? They're gonna lead you to your God. And what the Bible says is, it, it's, the Bible is a, it's like, a, it's like a doctor diagnosing your problem at the root of your life as you sit in the seat this morning. Your main problem is that you are worshiping something else besides God. There are rival gods to the throne of your heart and it's driving your behavior. Well, let's ask the question, uh, how do we get out of this? And uh, I won't spend very long on this one, but uh, what is the antidote? What's the cure for idolatry? Well, look at the story. Look, look what God does here. So he catches them in their idolatry. Moses comes down the mountain, and they're all dancing around this uh, golden God. And, and what does Moses do? What does God tell Moses to do? The first thing God tells Moses to do is kind of funny. He says, take that golden idol, grind it, into a bunch of gold powder put it in a bowl of water mix it up and make the people drink it now why in the world would god do this he wants them to taste the fruit of their idolatry he wants them to see what their idolatry really tastes like because here's the deal any time you put something else on the throne of your heart it will make you sick it will not only leave you empty, it will make you nauseous. <clears throat> I mentioned David Foster Wallace earlier in his Kenyon College address, and he says everybody worships, everybody, the thing about adult life is that we all put, have these rival thrones. He goes on to say in that little uh, address, he says, uh, the only choice that we get is what to worship, and he says the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what tap your, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. David Foster Wallace says here's the toxic thing about idols is that they will eat you alive. They'll eat you alive. In other words, God says I want you to see that you're, not only will they not fulfill you, anytime you start chasing after something besides God, it's gonna make you nauseous, it's gonna leave you empty and it's going to eat you alive. Whether it's money or achievement or body image or beauty, you put that thing as your ultimate value, it will eat you alive. So you gotta taste your idolatry. You gotta, you gotta see it for the emptiness that it is. The incomplete joys of the world will, ne- will never satisfy the human heart. And we gotta see that. But second of all, we, we need to see the beauty of the true God. And here, when you look at the story here, and I don't have time to go into it this morning, and I won't, but as the story goes on, you see the beautiful way that God responds to their idolatry. He forgives them. He sends Moses to be a mediator to stand in their place. He brings them back into his, into his, his you know, as his children. And ultimately, he will give his life for them in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, the true God, is the one you want. The old God, the golden calf, they gave everything to it. They gave gave their money and they gave their worship and they gave their energy to this God and it gave them nothing in return. It made them sick. The true God, he gives everything to you and in exchange, he fills you up. Jesus is the only Savior in the world who if you gain him will satisfy you And if you fail him, he'll forgive you. And so you've got to see the beauty of the true God. He is the only one who will give your life meaning. What is your golden calf? What are you chasing after? What do you think that if, oh, if I get that thing, then my life will have meaning? It won't. You were made to worship the true God. All of us worship and we were meant to worship the true God and he is the only one who will fill us and forgive us. He's the only one who will give your life meaning. And so uh, tomorrow and, and the next day and this week, let's set our hearts on the only one who will fill us up. And let's get rid of the idols. They're not worth it. Let's pray. Let us stand and pray. Father, we stand here today and, and Lord, we, we know that their problem was our problem. The people of Israel, they so quick to turn to a rival a rival God, somebody to, a God substitute, um, someone to put in your place. God, we do that too. And for us, whether it's achievement or career success or whether it's beauty and body image, uh, whether it's money, possessions, whether it's comfort luxury. Father, this morning, we want to name those thing, things before you. And we want to acknowledge today that those things will never fill the void in our hearts. And God, this morning, we want to put you on the throne. God, we want, to, uh, we want to give our lives to you, Lord. You are the one who has saved us and redeemed us. You are the true Savior. And God, I pray that we would turn to you and you alone in our crises God, we pray that we would look to you as the one that we need and love most of all. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.